Chapter Four, Section Two of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Four, Section Two. Slavery as a Democratic Institution. I have already suggested that it was the irresponsibility and the evasions of the party politicians which threw upon the abolitionists the duty of fighting slavery as an undemocratic institution. They took up the cause of the Negro in a spirit of religious self-consecration. The prevalence of irresolution and timidity in relation to slavery among the leaders of public opinion incited the abolitionists to a high degree of courage and exclusive devotion and unfortunately also the conciliating attitude of the official leaders encouraged on the part of the abolitionists an outburst of fanaticism in their devotion to their adopted cause they lost all sense of proportion all balance of judgment and all justice of perception and their narrowness and want of balance is in itself a sufficient indication that they were possessed of a half instead of a whole truth the fact that the abolitionists were disinterested and for a while persecuted men should not prevent the present generation from putting a just estimate on their work while they redeemed the honor of their country by assuming a grave and hard national responsibility they sought to meet that responsibility in a way that would have destroyed their country the abolitionists no less than the southerners were tearing at the fabric of american nationality they did it no doubt in the name of democracy but of all perverted conceptions of democracy one of the most perverted and dangerous is that which identifies it exclusively with a system of natural rights such a conception of democracy is in its effect inevitably revolutionary and merely loosens the social and national bond in the present instance they were betrayed into one of the worst possible sins against the national bond into the sin of doing a gross personal injustice to a large group of their fellow countrymen inasmuch as the southerners were willfully violating a divine law they became in the eyes of the abolitionists not merely misguided but wicked men and the abolitionists did not scruple to speak of them as unclean beasts who were fattening on the fruits of an iniquitous institution but such an inference was palpably false the southern slave owners were not unclean beasts and any theory which justified such an inference must be erroneous they were for the most part estimable if somewhat quick-tempered and irascible gentlemen who did much to mitigate the evils of negro servitude and who were on the whole liked rather than disliked by their bondsmen they were right moreover in believing that the negroes were a race possessed of moral and intellectual qualities inferior to those of the white men and however much they overworked their conviction of negro inferiority they could clearly see that the abolitionists were applying a narrow and perverted political theory to a complicated and delicate set of economic and social conditions it is no wonder consequently that they did not submit tamely to the abuse of the abolitionists and that they in their turn lost their heads unfortunately however the consequence of their wrong-headedness was more disastrous than it was in the case of the abolitionists because they were powerful and domineering as well as angry and unreasonable they were in a position if they so willed to tear the union to pieces whereas the abolitionists could only talk and behave as if any legal association with such sinners ought to be destroyed the southern slaveholders then undoubtedly had a grievance they were being abused by a faction of their fellow countrymen because they insisted on enjoying a strictly legal right 
and it is no wonder that they began to think of the abolitionists very much as the abolitionists thought of them moreover their anger was probably increased by the fact that the abolitionists could make out some kind of a case against them property in slaves was contrary to the declaration of independence and had been denounced in theory by the earlier american democrats so long as a conception of democracy which placed natural above legal rights was permitted to obtain their property in slaves would be imperiled and it was necessary consequently for the southerners to advance a conception of democracy which would stand as a fortress around their peculiar institution during the earlier days of the republic no such necessity had existed the southerners had merely endeavored to protect their negro property by insisting on an equal division of the domain out of which future states were to be carved and upon the admission into the union of a slave state to balance every new free commonwealth but the attempt of the abolitionists to identify the american national idea with a system of natural rights coupled with the plain fact that the national domain contained more material for free than it did for slave states provoked the southerners into taking more aggressive ground they began to identify the national idea exclusively with a system of legal rights and it became from their point of view a violation of national good faith even to criticize any rights enjoyed under the constitution they advanced a conception of american democracy which defied the constitution in its most rigid interpretation which made congress incompetent to meddle with any rights enjoyed under the constitution which converted any protest against such rights into national disloyalty and which in the end converted secession into a species of higher constitutional action calhoun's theory of constitutional interpretation was ingeniously wrought and powerfully argued from an exclusively legal standpoint it was plausible if not convincing but it was opposed by something deeper than counter theories of constitutional law it was opposed to the increasingly national outlook of a large majority of the american people they would not submit to a conception of the american political system designed exclusively to give legal protection to property and negroes and resulting substantially in the nationalization of slavery they insisted upon a conception of the constitution which made the national organization the expression of a democratic idea more comprehensive and dignified than that of existing legal rights and in so doing the northerners undoubtedly had behind them not merely the sound political idea but also a fair share of the living american tradition the southerners had pushed the traditional worship of constitutional rights to a point which subordinated the whole american legal system to the needs of one peculiar and incongruous institution and such an innovation was bound to be revolutionary but when the north proposed to put its nationalistic interpretation of the constitution into effect and to prevent the south by force from seceding the south could claim for its resistance a larger share of the american tradition than could the north for its coercion to insist that the southern states remain in the union was assuredly an attempt to govern a whole society without its consent and the fact that the southerners rather than the northerners were technically violators of the law did not prevent the former from going into battle profoundly possessed with the conviction that they were fighting for an essentially democratic cause the aggressive theories and policy of the southerners made the moderate opponents of slavery realize that the beneficiaries of that institution would unless checked succeed eventually in nationalizing slavery by appropriating on its behalf the national domain a body of public opinion was gradually formed which looked in the direction merely of denationalizing slavery by restricting its expansion 
this body of public opinion was finally organized into the republican party and this party has certain claims to be considered the first genuinely national party which has appeared in american politics the character of being national has been denied to it because it was compared to the old whig and democratic parties a sectional organization but a party becomes national not by the locus of its support but by the national import of its idea and its policy the republican party was not entirely national because it had originated partly in embittered sectional feeling but it proclaimed a national idea and a national policy it insisted on the responsibility of the national government in relation to the institution of slavery and it insisted also that the union should be preserved but before the republicanism could be recognized as national even in the north it was obliged to meet and vanquish one more proposed treatment of the problem of slavery founded on an inadequate conception of democracy in this case moreover the inadequate conception of democracy was much more traditionally american than was an exclusive preoccupation either with natural or legal rights and according to its chief advocate it would have the magical result of permitting the expansion of slavery and of preserving the constitutional union without doing any harm to democracy this was the theory of popular sovereignty whose ablest exponent was stephen douglas about eighteen fifty he became the official leader of the western democracy this section of the party no longer controlled the organization as it did in the days of jackson but it was still powerful and influential it persisted in its loyalty to the union coupled with its dislike of nationalizing organization and it persisted also in its dislike of any interference with the individual so long as he was making lawful money the legal right to own slaves was from their point of view a right like no other and not only could it not be taken away from the southern states but no individual should be deprived of it by the national government when a state came to be organized such a right might be denied by the state constitution but the nation should do nothing to prejudice the decision the inhabitants of the national domain should be allowed to own slaves or not to own them just as they pleased until the time came for the adoption of a state constitution and any interference with this right violated democratic principles by an unjustifiable restriction upon individual and local action thus was another kind of liberty invoked in order to meet the new phase of the crisis and if it had prevailed the united states would have become a legal union without national cohesion and a democracy which issued not illogically in human servitude douglas was sincere in his belief that the principle of local or popular sovereignty supplied a strictly democratic solution of the slavery problem and it was natural that he should seek to use this principle for the purpose of reaching a permanent settlement when with the assistance of the south he effected the repeal of the missouri compromise he honestly thought that he was replacing an arbitrary and unstable territorial division of the country into slave and free states by a settlement which would be stable because it was the logical product of the american democratic idea the interpretation of democracy which dictated the proposed solution was sufficiently perverted but it was nevertheless a faithful reflection of the traditional point of view of the jacksonian democratic party and it deserves more respectful historical treatment than it sometimes receives it was after all the first attempt which had been made to legislate in relation to slavery on the basis of a principle and the application of any honest idea to the subject matter of the controversy served to clear an atmosphere which for thirty years had been clouded by unprincipled compromises 
the methods and the objects of the several different parties were made suddenly definite and unmistakable and their representatives found it necessary for the first time to stand firmly upon their convictions instead of sacrificing them in order to maintain an appearance of peace it soon became apparent that not even this erection of national irresponsibility into a principle would be sufficient to satisfy the south because the interests of the south had come to demand the propagation of slavery as a constitutional right and if necessary in defiance of local public opinion unionists were consequently given to understand that the south was offering them a choice between a divided union and the nationalization of slavery and they naturally drew the conclusion that they must denationalize slavery in order to perpetuate the union the repeal consequently hastened the formation of the republican party whose object it was to prevent the expansion of slavery and to preserve the union without violating the constitutional rights of the south such a policy could no longer prevail without a war the southerners had no faith in the fair intentions of their opponents they worked themselves into the belief that the whole anti-slavery party was abolitionist and the whole anti-slavery agitation national disloyalty but the issue had been so shaped that the war could be fought for the purpose of preserving american national integrity and that was the only issue on which a righteous war could be fought thus the really decisive debates which preceded the civil war were not those which took place in congress over states rights but rather the discussion in illinois between lincoln and douglas as to whether slavery was a local or a national issue the congressional debates were on both sides merely a matter of legal special pleading for the purpose of justifying a preconceived decision what it was necessary for patriotic american citizens and particularly for western democrats to understand was not whether the south possessed a dubious right of secession because that dispute in case it came to a head could only be settled by war but whether a democratic nation could on democratic principles continue to shirk the problem of slavery by shifting the responsibility for it to individuals and localities as soon as lincoln made it plain that a democratic nation could not make local and individual rights an excuse for national irresponsibility then the unionist party could count upon the support of the american conscience the former followers of douglas finally rallied to the man and to the party which stood for a nationalized rather than a merely localized democracy and the triumph of the north in the war not only put an end to the legal right of secession but it began to emancipate the american national idea from an obscurantist individualism and provincialism our current interpretation of democracy still contains much dubious matter derived from the jacksonian epoch but no american statesman can hereafter follow douglas in making the democratic principle equivalent to utter national incoherence and irresponsibility mr theodore roosevelt in his addresses to the veterans of the civil war has been heard to assert that the crisis teaches us a much-needed lesson as to the supreme value of moral energy it would have been much pleasanter and cheaper to let the south secede but the people of the north preferred to pay the cost of justifiable coercion in blood and treasure than to submit to the danger and humiliation of peaceable rebellion doubtless the foregoing is sometimes a wholesome lesson on which to insist but it is by no means the only lesson suggested by the event the abolitionists had not shirked their duty as they understood it they had given their property and their lives to the anti-slavery agitation but they were as willing as the worst copperheads to permit the secession of the south because of the erroneous and limited character of their political ideas while the crisis had undoubtedly been in a large measure 
brought about by moral lethargy, and it could only be properly faced by a great expenditure of moral energy, it had also been brought about quite as much by political unintelligence, and the salvation of the Union depended primarily and emphatically upon a better understanding, on the part of the northern public opinion of the issues involved. Confused as was the counsel offered to them, and distracting as were their habits of political thought, the people of the North finally disentangled the essential question, and then supported loyally the man who, more than any other single political leader, had properly defined the issue. That man was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's peculiar service to his countrymen before the war was that of seeing straighter and thinking harder than did his contemporaries. No doubt he must needs have courage, also, for in the beginning he acted against the advice of his Republican associates. But in 1858 there were plenty of men who had the courage, whereas there were few who had Lincoln's disciplined intelligence, and his just and penetrating insight. Lincoln's vision placed every aspect of the situation in its proper relations, and he was fully competent to detect the logical weakness of his opponent's position, as he was to explain his own lucidly, candidly, and persuasively. It so happened that the body of public opinion which he particularly addressed, was that very part of the American democracy most likely to be deluded into allowing the Southern leaders to have their will, yet whose adhesion to the national cause was necessary to the preservation of the Union. It was on to this mass of public opinion, after the announcement of his senatorial candidacy, that he hammered a new and a hard truth. He was the first responsible politician to draw the logical inference from the policy of the Republican Party. The Constitution was inadequate to cure the ills it generated. By its authorization of slavery, it established an institution whose legality did not prevent it from being anti-national. That institution must either be gradually reduced to insignificance, or else it must transform and take possession of the American national idea. The Union had become a house divided against itself, and this deep-lying division could not be bridged merely by loyal constitutionalism, or by an anti-national interpretation of democracy. The legal union was being threatened precisely because American national integrity was being gutted by an undemocratic institution. The house must either fall or else cease to be divided. Thus for the first time, it was clearly proclaimed by a responsible politician that American nationality was a living principle rather than a legal bond, and Lincoln's service to his country in making the Western democracy understand that living Americans were responsible for their national integrity can scarcely be overvalued. The ground was cut from under the traditional point of view of the pioneer, which had been to feel patriotic and national, but to plan and to agitate only for the fulfillment of local and individual ends. The virtue of Lincoln's attitude may seem to be as much a matter of character as of intelligence, and such, indeed, is undoubtedly the case. My point is, not that Lincoln's greatness was more a matter of intellect than of will, but that he rendered to his country a peculiar service, because his luminous and disciplined intelligence, and his national outlook, enabled him to give each aspect of a complicated and confused situation its proper relative emphasis. At a later date, when he had become president, and was obliged to take decisive action in order to prevent the house from utterly collapsing, he showed an inflexibility of purpose no less remarkable than his previous intellectual insight. For as long as he had not made up his mind, he hesitated firmly and patiently, but when he had made up his mind, he was not to be confused or turned aside. Indeed, 
during the weeks of perplexity which preceded the bombardment of fort sumter lincoln sometimes seems to be the one wise and resolute man among a group of leaders who were either resolute and foolish or wise after a fashion and irresolute the amount of bad advice which was offered to the american people at this moment is appalling and it is to be explained only by the bad moral and intellectual habits fastened upon our country during forty years of national turpitude but lincoln never for an instant allowed his course to be diverted if the union was attacked he was prepared actively to defend it if it was let alone he was prepared to do what little he could towards the denationalization of slavery but he refused absolutely to throw away the fruits of republican victory by renewing the policy of feudal and unprincipled compromises back of all his opinions there was an ultimate stability of purpose which was the result both of sound mental discipline and of a firm will he was a mind unlike that of clay seward or even webster which had never been cheapened by its own exercise during his mature years he rarely if ever proclaimed an idea which he had not mastered and he never abandoned a truth which he had not once thoroughly achieved end of chapter four section two